Uh, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Richard Holloway, and it's my privilege and pleasure to chair this event with um, Tony Benn. A couple of notices. If you've got a mobile phone, would you please make sure it's turned off? Um, there will be a signing uh, of Tony's book, Dare to be a Daniel, in the tent immediately after this event. And uh, a rather more serious note, if the Scottish Tobacco Police send in an SAS squad to arrest him as a notorious pipe smoker, he's dared to smoke in the precincts of Charlotte Square, please engage in a diversion and I'll take him out the back. <laughs> Could we have the lights up so I can see the audience? Because I'm more interested in the audience than I am. That's ah, better. That's good, good, good. Right. Um, I'll introduce Tony. We'll talk for about 20 minutes. Then it's over to you. Tony Benn was first elected to the House of Commons in 1950, and he retired in the year 2001, as he put it, to devote more time to politics. <laughs> he is the longest-serving Labour MP of all time, and has held cabinet and party posts. I think he was a cabinet minister, all told, for 11 years. In 2002, the year after his retirement, he was voted politician of the year by Channel 4 viewers. And since his retirement from the House of Commons, he spent a lot of time on the road, stimulating large audiences of people to think about the major issues of our time. The Japanese accord a special status to artists of note whom they describe as living national treasures. Were Britain to institute such a status, he'd be the top person on the list. So please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edinburgh Book Festival, a living national treasure, Tony Benn. And we're going to begin um, with the number one topic that's preoccupying all of us, which is the Middle East. And Tony, um, we had a wee blether before we came on, and I, I mentioned to you that Herbert Kelly, a historian, talking about the interconnectedness of events in human history, claimed that the First World War was remotely triggered by the building of the Great Wall of China thousands of years before. And the philosopher Hegel said that most human conflict is not between an obvious right and an obvious wrong, but, but between rival versions of the good, rival versions of what is right. Given that kind of background and your uh, astonishing record in public affairs, from your perspective, could you um, talk to us about conflicts in the Middle East from a historical point of view and how you see a possible humane way of reconciling these apparently intractable differences? Well, I mean, the short answer is there will never be peace in the Middle East until the Palestinians have a state in the frontiers set down by the United Nations and Israel withdraws from that. That is, and without that, there will never be peace. But I'm not sure I agree it is about rival views of good and evil. I've often thought about the First World War before I was born but it was between the three grandchildren of Queen Victoria. The, Queen was the, grand, uh, the king was grandson of Queen Victoria, the Kaiser was the grandson of Queen Victoria, and the Tsar of Russia had married Queen Victoria's granddaughter. Now, why did we have that war? Millions died. 
And that triggered off the Second War because the effect of it was in Russia you had the Communist Revolution and in Germany you had fascism. And then the Second World War was, took place. Then after that we had the Cold War. Now it's the Muslims. And I don't want to frighten you, but in a year or two it'll be the Chinese, the Yellow Peril. And the MI5 will be watching every takeaway, Chinese takeaway. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm not far wrong. Governments need an enemy to control us, I think. I mean, there are real issues, but I don't think it's about good and evil. Bush said God sent him into Iraq. <laughs> well, I would have called that fundamentalism of the worst kind. Then the, many Jews think that when Moses went out Mount Sinai, God allocated Palestine to them. I didn't know God was an estate agent, but that's a, And then Osama bin Laden has his own view. And I think it's nothing to do with religion at all. I think it's an absolute lie to suggest that uh, if you worship one God, you have a duty to kill people who worship another God. But it's a complex question, not made much easier, I think, by the Israeli attack on the Lebanon. What about the status of Israel? I mean, uh, I, I watched the president of uh, Iran on television last night doing very well against an American journalist, I thought. Um, and he pointed out that um, Israel was a result of the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a European problem and so on. Why have you exported your difficulties to us? But we have the there. Um, do you see a way, I mean, apart from establishing a Palestinian homeland, an adequate one, do you think that would be a sufficient and essential um, way of achieving a settled Israeli state as well. Well, I uh, supported the state of Israel for the reason of the Holocaust. My father helped to get Jewish children to, to Britain in the 30s. Uh, and uh, now you have to recognize Israel is the fifth most powerful nuclear weapon state in the world. It's, over, it's a superpower. Israel is a super armed by the United States and during the Lebanon war while these people were being killed in the Lebanon, and a quarter of them were homeless and a thousand were killed, America was sending weapons to Israel, and we were sending weapons and allowing American weapons to come through British airports. And I mean, that explains, I would have thought, a lot of what is called terrorism. Why is it terrorism when you blow up a train and a bus in London on 7-7, but not terrorism when you kill a thousand Lebanese? Why? And I think understanding what's happening is the one thing we can do. I mean, there's a difference about it, but I don't think we're assisted much mm. to understand by the propaganda we're getting. And a, a, a quick segue on the present government's foreign policy um, and the debate in Britain about the role that has on uh, stimulating young men to take up violent action against us. Well, if you look at the special relationship, mind you, American presidents always have to be reminded there's a special relationship when British prime ministers go. They, their special relationship is with Israel. But, mm. you see, if you look back at it, it was the fact that America came into two world wars and made it possible to win both. In the second one, of course, only after Pearl Harbor. But look at what it meant in reality. The day I was elected to Parliament, which is not a day anyone will forget, the 30th of November 1950, President Truman said he might use an atomic weapon in Korea. Actually, the Labour Prime Minister flew straight to Washington and stopped it. In 1956, when Eden attacked Egypt, pretended he was peacekeeping, Eisenhower stopped it. And in 19, whenever it was, the Vietnam War, Harold Wilson, I was in the cabinet mm. then, refused to support the Vietnam War. Now, 
if it's a special relationship, you have to be candid with your friends. And Prime Minister's done everything he's been told by the Prime Minister, by, by, by the President. I mean, I think, really, that this is the first President that reshuffled the British Cabinet. I think he, well, I think he got rid of Jack Straw mm. because Jack Straw said it would be nuts to invade Iran. And so mm. uh, we are now a colony of the United States. And I don't, I, I'm very pro-American, married in America, love America, but I don't think Bush represents America anymore. And I thought Mrs. Thatcher really represented Britain. Mm. So it's not about nationality, it's about the policies. Let's move on to um, something. This is a lovely book, by the way, and if you haven't got it, there'll be plenty of time to get it afterwards. Um, and in the book, you quote what you call your five little democratic questions, and they're actually quite profound. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? <laughs> so using that particular a catechism, would you apply the questionnaire to the state of democracy in Britain and be to the state of the British media, whom I saw you interrogating on Channel 4 on Saturday night to great effect? Well, those questions were intended to highlight the fact that, as a member of Parliament, I was employed by 60,000 people. Everyone, the bus driver, the street sweeper, the policeman, the ho employed me. I could say what I like, and I did, and they could get rid of me. So I had to listen to them. I think it's only when you are employed by somebody you have to listen. Uh, and you see, if you look at the world today, we d we're not a self-governing nation. Gordon Brown is not allowed to spend more than 3% of our national product under the Maastricht Treaty. So if he wants a new hospital, he has to privatize it. Our foreign policy and defense policy are decided by the Pentagon. The World Trade Organization decides that you have to level playing field. If you subsidize your health service, you're competing unfairly. Um, Peter Mandelson, who had never been elected by anybody, you know, I was just appointed, he controls our trade policy. And I think governments are very reluctant to tell people the truth, which is that we are no longer a self-governing country. If that were explained, then people would have to think how to deal with it. And I mean, I think it's a very difficult question. But we're not told that. And in effect, the way the world is governed now has produced a one-party state in every parliamentary democracy, Kerry and Bush, uh, Merkel and Schroeder, Berlusconi offered a coalition to Prodi, and Blair and Cameron. And, and so we have a one-party state, and people don't feel they're represented. They feel they're being managed all the time. And I think you have to think about these things. I mean, what to do about it is, is difficult, but there are only three key questions in politics. What's going on? Why? And what can we do about it? And it's difficult to get the right answer to any of those questions. I, that's why I put it to the television interviewers the other day. They decide what's going on, they decide why, and they don't want to hear any argument that they don't agree with <laughs> about what we should do about it. So I think that the media, they play the part in the modern world that the church played in the Middle Ages. Didn't the church told you what to believe. You went to church and the priest said, God wants you to do what the king wants you to do, which is why the Church of England was nationalized by Henry VIII, our oldest nationalized industry. <laughs> and the BBC was nationalized by the Tory party in the 20s for the same reason. They want controlling what people think is the key source of power. And so those questions are, are, are relevant, but we, don't, we can't get rid of the people who now govern us. That's the problem. Is there no way that uh, parliamentarians, uh, people like you, because, I mean, they're theoretically supposed to be able to hold governments to account. Why has that kind of taken a dip in the last 20, 30 years? 
Well, it's because so much power is now out of the country that in order to respond to that power, power in the country becomes more centralised. I know we talk about uh, you know, devolution, the Scottish Parliament, but the biggest constitutional change the Prime Minister has made is to recreate a medieval monarchy. He's the king. He doesn't listen to the cabinet. He doesn't listen to Parliament. He doesn't listen to the party party. He doesn't listen. He operates now as a king because that's the only way he can perform to meet the people I described a moment ago who really control us. And uh, we're back to about 1834, I think, uh, when only 10% of the people in Britain had the vote. They were all rich white men. Mm. And then in that 100 years, right up to when women got the vote at the same age as men in my lifetime, in 1928, you got a parliament that represented people, and now the world is run by 10%, and they're all rich men, they're all white, and some of them may be women, and, and we're back where we've got to recreate on a global scale the democracy we fought for so hard with the Chartists and the suffragettes. That's, I think that's what we have mm. to do. Can we turn to Scotland? I mean, next May, uh, we'll have an election to the Scottish Parliament, and some um, commentators claim to find in the Scottish electorate an acute discomfort about the very things you're talking about. Um, and there may be a knock-on effect that will lead to the gradual dissolution of the Union. Um, we also pick up a bit of dissatisfaction in England about the fact that they are governed largely by Scottish politicians in Westminster. Um, what's your thinking about devolution, how it's worked out, and how would you feel if some kind of dissolution of the Union did take place? Would you see that as in some ways something to be regretted or something that simply happened? And what's your take on um, the position of Scotland in overall union politics at the moment? Well, I always supported, well, my grandfather was elected as Home Rule for Ireland in 1892. I've always supported a Scottish Parliament, always. I think the West Lothian question that Tam Deol raised is an important one. I did uh, publish a book called Common Sense with a completely new constitution for Britain which would involve an English Parliament and then a, a Federal Senate. But the, anyone in Scotland who talks about Scottish independence ne always seems to forget that the reason that there isn't a split is that the Scots don't want it. I mean, if the Scots voted for independence, are we going to send an army there in addition to the army in Iraq and Afghanistan? Of course we're not. The decision is a Scottish decision. But I do think that uh, um, uh, you do have to devolve more power. And, uh, and then if you had a small elected federal senate, rather like the Americans who after all cope with mm. their situation, I think that would probably be the best way of doing it. Of course, the Conservatives are now using the West Lothian question to try and prevent Gordon Brown from becoming leader of the Labour Party. Well, that's uh, another argument. But it is, it is odd that uh, England, which always depended on Scottish MPs to get a majority, British, the mm. Labour Party, mm. now finds that it may not have a majority in England and will rely on Scottish MPs and Conservatives who did win in England will object. I understand all that, mm -hmm. but that's not the real question. The real question is, could we have a settled democratic constitution for the United Kingdom? And you would have won in which there was really a radical devolution throughout the UK. Yes, I think yeah. England should have a, a parliament of its own. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would not involve the breakup. It would involve a new relationship. And I think the Scottish Parliament has worked very well. I mean, I'm looking at it from mm. the outside. I know the building was expensive, but so was the dome and so is the trident. I'd rather have a Scottish Parliament building than the trident if yeah. I have a, a choice. <laughs> <laughs>
and, and you'll forgive us the tobacco legislation. <laughs> there was an ad hoc press conference outside, and he, he pointed out the government encourages you to gamble and to drink, but it won't let you smoke. So, um, Tony, you're the son of, of devout Christian parents who dared you to be a Daniel in your personal and political life, and I think you've certainly uh, fulfilled that imperative. Um, give us a reflection on how you see uh, the role of religion both in your own life and more importantly in the kind of volatile world situation because it's come back in a big way. One of the interesting facts about this festival, uh, there are more programs on the fringe on the, the on the theme of religion than in almost yes, any other topic. Yeah, yeah. It's quite astonishing the way it's going to yeah. come back uh, with a vengeance. Um, reflect for us. Well, that's very interesting because I did... Uh, a lecture the other day and about science. Now, this is the scientific era, but the real question is, what do you do with science? I may have told this joke before, but it's true. When the Russians and the Americans had a space race to see who could put a man on the moon, the Russians landed a space vehicle, beautiful thing, which crossed. It was like a World War I tank with caterpillar tracks. And I had a letter from a constituent in Bristol saying, Dear Tony, I see the Russians have put a space vehicle on the moon, is there any chance of a better bus service in Bristol? <laughs> now, you see, it was a very, very good question. Uh, and religion deals with moral questions, doesn't it? And they are very important. I, my mother brought me up to, she brought me up on the Bible. She read the Old Testament and Hebrew and the New Testament and Greek. She's a very scholarly woman. And she taught me that the Bible was the story of the conflict between the kings who had power and the prophets who preach righteousness. And she taught me to support the prophets against the kings. It got me into a lot of trouble in my life. But the more I look at it, the more the teachings of Jesus are what matters. And I find the church in some of its aspects very puzzling. I mean, for example, in a world where so many men hate each other, if two men love each other, the church splits. I just don't understand that. And... Uh, <laughs> so... I did a, a talk on socialism and Christianity to the Bishop of Worcester's diocese the other day, and I was talking about the moral teachings of Jesus that's influenced the labor movement, and an evangelical got up at the end, he was very, very angry. He said, I've listened to your speech, but do you believe that Jesus is our Lord? And I said, my difficulty is I don't believe in lords. <laughs> and and then, then he said, do you believe in the kingdom of heaven? I said, I'm a Republican myself. <laughs> All the women laughed because the language of religion mm. is monarchical and male, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And I said, if you say, do you see Jesus as your teacher in the commonwealth of humanity, I'm with you all the time. And religion can be used so many ways it, as an inspiration uh, 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 to do the right thing, as a comfort. What's wrong with that? Uh, it's a ritual. I like, I like uh, going to funerals. I love funerals, particularly, if you know what I mean because you discover things about Aunt Emily you never knew when she was alive. <laughs> and I like, and I understand bishops in funny outfits, and I like the churches, but tell me that that leads me to kill people who worship another god is a crime. Uh, it's a part of our culture at its best. Well, it's the teachings, most important. Then it's the moral questions it raises, which is why it's taken such a prominent role in public debate. And then it's about our culture. And people who try and use God to control me. All I hope is when I go to hell, there's an energy crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Chances are there will be. Um, 
<laughs> Final one from me. Uh, Enoch Powell famously said that all political careers end in failure. Comment. Well, and my career ended in failure long before I left, they finished it. <laughs> I think if you have an early failure, then you have a life after death. And uh, you see, the great thing about being 80, I'm 81 now, you don't want, you've got a lot of experience, you don't want anything. I never asked permission to do anything except smoking in Scotland. I realize that's a <laughs> special case. And it gives you a certain freedom. And, uh, and I think the freedom to think and also, um, I, the older I get, the less sure I am I'm right about anything. Because the problems are so horrific, aren't they? I mean, when I was younger, I thought it was easy, but now I think it's very... That's why I like listening to people. I think, uh, I think a meeting like this... With, how many people are here? 500? Oops. Oh, no, more than that. Six, seven hundred. Six, yeah. seven hundred. Yeah. Assuming yeah. you're all 40 years old, that would be 6,000 times... Four, it'd be 30,000 years of experience. If you're all my age, it'd be 60,000 years of experience in this room. Now, the case of democracy is you tap the experience of people, and experience is the only real teacher. And it's what's happened to me mm. that shaped my opinion. I've read books, but they help me to understand what's happened. But I find uh, that what's happened to you, I mean, I was in London in the Blitz. I saw Oswald Mosley, the fascist leader in the streets of London, and these things have shaped my attitude. And then uh, you can't be diverted if you come to a conclusion by your own experience. If you read a book, you might decide later Marx was wrong. <laughs> well, let, let's tap into this um, uh, collective wisdom gathered in front of us. Um, uh, we've got mics uh, for questions. And if you could just keep your hands up. Um, and I, I myself quite like a bit of gender balance in the questions. Yes, quite right. So that men don't totally take it over. So who's going first? Up there? Will you repeat the question if I yes. don't catch up? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, in your diaries you paint a picture of a very colourful cabinet with actual disagreements in cabinet over policy. In the modern governments of the Thatcher government and the Blair government, it doesn't seem there's, there is any discussion in Cabinet. Is this because people like Blair and Thatcher are so strong, or is it because Cabinet ministers are now so weak? Well, it is an interesting question about Cabinet, because the most interesting committee I ever sat on in my life was the Cabinet. Barbara Castle, Dick Crossman, Roy Jenkins, Jim Callaghan, Harold Wilson. I mean, they were formidable people. And we argued it out. And I looked in my diary, because I keep a very meticulous diary, and in January 1968, we had eight full-day meetings of Cabinet, morning and afternoon. And I tell you what it did do. You put your case, and if you lost, which I did quite often, sometimes I won, but if you lost, you were committed to the decision because you participated in it. Now the Prime Minister, the Cabinet last 20 minutes, is just long enough for the Prime Minister to tell the Ministers what he's decided. I'm not kidding. I mean, that, it is half an hour Cabinet. And it's a complete transformation. And in a way, I do blame Cabinet Ministers for not... I don't know anything about it. I don't ask my son about it at all. But I don't get the feeling that there's much discussion. And actually, I used to put in papers to the Cabinet. And uh, I remember putting in a paper on Northern Ireland. and nothing whatever to do with my job, but I felt it was an important issue that should be looked at, and the Cabinet discussed it. I don't think that happens anymore. And uh, the reason is the patronage of the Prime Minister. Because every Cabinet Minister, I mean, 
uh, what powers a cabinet minister got? He got it from the prime minister. To whom is he accountable? The prime minister. Who's answerable to the prime minister? Who can sack him? The prime minister. You get the patronage does have the effect of, of controlling people who ought to be controlling you. And I think that has happened, and I think will have to change. And it will change, too. I'm, I'm a great optimist. I met Ramsay MacDonald when I was five. Gave me a chocolate biscuit. <laughs> and uh, I've always been suspicious of Labour leaders with chocolate biscuits. <laughs> and uh, in 1931, you know, there were only 50 Labour MPs left. My dad was beat in Aberdeen in 51. And 14 years later, we had a landslide. The welfare state ended the empire without blood. So don't think history ever stops, despite Francis Fukuyama, I believe, has been here. But he's changed his mind, which is also quite comforting. Yes. Um, anyone else? Anyone? Yep. Up. Oh, that's, yeah. That's coming. Oh, sorry, do I, I need this, do I? Hello? Yes, Can that's fine. Sorry, um, may I just say that, uh, unfortunately, unlike uh, Mr. Bush, I don't have a hotline to uh, God, but um, I would ask you, um, so therefore I, I look forward, if God willing, to become 80 sometime, I doubt it, but I do want to ask one question. Uh, I have many, but I won't do that. I heard this morning again that someone's going to see, uh, talk to four Muslim MPs. Now, how come they are being called Muslim MPs and not Catholic and not Jewish and not... There's suddenly four Muslim MPs. I would like to know... And also, the other thing is, um, for instance, uh, this business of terrorists, you know, one person's terrorist, as we know, is another person's freedom fighter. And uh, Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair, unfortunately, as well, is carrying on about we have to defeat terrorists. And are, are they supposed... They are supposed to be intelligent people, these alleged uh, politicians. I mean, uh, you know, don't they know that uh, they're winding everybody up and if, uh, and therefore going on about terrorism, they're making so-called ter alleged terrorists, you know, by the minute, recruiting them by the second. But anybody could be a terrorist. Uh, IRA were so terrorists. Could, could you bring it to a... a no, that's enough, that's yeah, enough. Yeah. I just yeah. want to know about Muslims, uh, okay. Muslim MPs. No, well, I mean, on the question of terrorism, I went to the House of Lords to hear a debate the other day. I haven't been, you know, I've avoided the place for a long time, but I went to hear the debate on the terrorism bill. And Tom King, who was a Tory minister for Northern Ireland, said, when we locked people up in the Mays prison, we were the recruiting agents for the IRA. He was absolutely right. And if you do invade a country, can you be surprised if they take action against you? This pretense that 7-7 had nothing whatever to do with the war against Iraq is just a complete illusion. And yet they try to tell us it's true. And I'm against violence. Don't make any mistake about it. I, I think uh, that we should resolve our differences by agreement. But if you do attack a country, that, uh, they will respond. And this is the way they respond. They haven't got nuclear weapons. And actually, nuclear weapons aren't an awful lot of good. I mean, Israel's got nuclear weapons, but it's had a difficult job in the Lebanon in dealing with Hezbollah. And uh, guerrillas and uh, people of that kind are more effective, in a way, dealing with uh, invaders than having huge uh, weapons you can't use. So I think this has to be discussed. Mandela was a terrorist, wasn't he? I mean, all the people we locked up ended up as having tea with 
Queen's head of Commonwealth countries, you know. I mean, surely there's a lesson somewhere from that. As to the number of Muslim MPs, well, that's a question that does depend upon a, the method of election and so on, and I don't think religion ought to be the basis on which you stand for Parliament either. Um, yes, thank you. Woman there, thanks. Thank you. Um, you. I would like you to reflect on the state of the Home Office. 30 years ago, I worked in London, and we had a lot of dealings with Lunar House, which was a byword for total inefficiency, and not to put too fine a point on it, racism. It has gone on for the last 30 years like that. Is it redeemable? What was that? Um, it's a question about the Home Office. Is it redeemable? Uh, this lady's had experience of it. She said a place called Lunar House was incurably racist. Yeah. Um, do, do you know anything much about the Home Office? Well, I know I've never had my... I mean, apart from appealing to the Home Office endlessly for people who've been refugees. I've got a woman from a local shop from Eritrea. Her husband was killed in the war. She's lived here 13 years, and they're trying to deport her back to Eritrea. And I, I went to the tribunal. You know, I take up cases, but I know nothing about them. Uh, John Reed said it wasn't fit for purpose. Uh, but that might apply to the Home Secretary, too. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> uh, and uh, there is an inherent racism in our society because it, it's partly fear, but it is partly the inheritance of empire, you know. Um, there's a, a plaque up in Westminster Abbey I came across the other day celebrating the people of the British race who dominated the world. You know, we use racism then in a positive way. And it's the, it's the younger children who get through all that. I've got grandchildren uh, in a primary school in London with 77 nationalities in the school and a refugee centre. And when I go and talk to the school, it's like meeting a UN. Amazing, and they come home, they've got Muslim friends, Jewish friends, Chinese friends, Nigerian, Jamaican, and I, my grandchildren understand this perfectly well, so that maybe more people of my age have got to die off before this becomes apparent, which you're quite right, and the police too, an inherent racism, look at the Stephen Lawrence case, no question about it, there was a racism in the police, and it's not that you want to blame anybody, you just want to bring it out and resolve it. It's very interesting if you were. Another woman here. Thank you. Do we only have one mic? Ah, sorry. Changing the subject, uh, you mentioned China in your uh, introduction. Would you like to speculate a bit on the, what do you uh, see the future of China for us, please? Well, I presume on China that it is becoming the greatest empire in the world. You know, there were some Americans of whom Bush was a part, wrote this project for the new American century. This was to be the century when America dominated the world. It won't be the American century, it'll be the Asian century. And China and India and Brazil will be overwhelmingly most powerful at the end of the century. I'll be gone by then, or maybe I won't if the health service improves. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, and, and China is a very, very ancient civilization. <clears throat> I remember when I was there years ago, they said to me, talking about Genghis Khan, you know what he did, he went right through. He killed a million Iraqis on his way through to India. And they said to me, well, Genghis Khan's method of delivery was the horse, and his warhead was gunpowder. And they were right. And I think if we don't get this right, the difference between this generation and any other generation is this, and it's an important difference. Young people of my grandchildren's age have got the power nobody's ever had before to destroy the human race. 
uh, because with chemi you know, with a bow and arrow, you kill one person with a revolver, a machine gun, a bomb. But with chemical, nuclear, and biological weapons, it is possible to destroy the human race. But it's also the first generation in human history with the technology to solve the, and the money to solve the problems of the human race. I mean, a fraction of the cost of the Iraq war would have given everyone in Africa with AIDS drugs. It would even protect his New Orleans from the Katrina. And you see, during the last war, this is what registers in my mind, we talked on troop ships, because war is very boring, very dangerous sometimes, but mainly boring, and we talked all the time. And what we said to each other was this, in the 30s we had unemployment, fascism, rearmament, the means test, but we don't have unemployment in war, we said. If you can have full employment by killing Germans, why can't we have full employment by building hospitals, building schools? And that's what brought us the welfare state. So maybe at this period in history, people will see that if they devote their resources to positive things, you'll deal with the injustice, and injustice is the main cause of war. I think it's possible that will happen. If it doesn't, then, you know, we may be the last generation who meet in the book festival. Well, it could be. Gentleman there, um, and, one, and then the next one there. Whoever gets there first. Yeah. He's managed it by a, by a nose. Yes, sir. Then, then you. Yes, what do you think the role of party politics is in the future? What brought it to mind, I was marching on Saturday with my grandchildren who were enthusiastically saying, uh, chanting anti-Bush and anti-Blair slogans and I thought why am I still a member of the Labour Party and has that thought ever crossed your mind <laughs> <laughs> well I, uh, I got a letter funnily enough from the General Secretary of the Labour Party the day, an email saying dear Mr Ben have you ever thought of joining the Labour Party <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, wrote, I sent you an email back saying I've been a member for 64 years but with the new modern technology they didn't notice that but, no, I'm a, I, I, I'm a member of the Labour Party because I think you have to work together to do anything. And the Labour Party is based on the trade union movement, and it has, it's, 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 uh, it's never been a socialist party. It's always had socialists in it, just as there are some Christians in the churches. parallel. <laughs> and I'm a socialist in the Labour Party, and I'm very proud of what it's done in my life. You know, I was a backbencher in Parliament when Naren Bevan was Minister of Health. I'm very proud of it. I think now New Labour is, is completely gone wrong. And when Mrs. Thatcher was asked her greatest achievement, she said New Labour. <laughs> and I think that's right. Uh, but I, when I look at the world, I look at what's happening in Venezuela and Cuba and Brazil. and all, I see this globalisation where the market is put into... I think it's, it's in decline. So I live in hopes. But at any rate, if you just do it on your own, you don't get very far, and I'm very much against sectarian socialism, like I think religion with the division Sunni, Shiites, and Protestants, and Catholics, all that didn't actually help the cause. I think you have to uh, use your religion to help you to understand the world and then work with other people. Anyway, you may be wrong, and other people may be right. I've learned more from listening to people, truthfully. Uh, because, you know, I have, I've made a million mistakes in my life. They're all in my diary. But I'm not ashamed of making a mistake so long as I never said anything I didn't believe to get on. But making a mistake is the story of our life, isn't it? I think it'll come right, but I may be wrong, but I think it will. Tony, you seem to have a, an aversion to the Lords, and I'm totally confused by them. I've heard people who are members of the Lords who say that they put a tremendous amount of work 
into committees and they produce um, modifying recommendations to the legislation and it doesn't seem to uh, mature into anything like a modified legislation. Is there any purpose in the Lords, in your view, and how do we resolve it? Because it isn't functioning at the moment. Well, I mean, first of all, hereditary peers are ludicrous, aren't they? I mean, if I went to the dentist and just as he started drilling, he said, by the way, I'm not a dentist myself, but my father was a very good dentist. <laughs> I would, or if you go on holiday and you know, as you take off at, at Heathrow, the pilot says, my grandfather flew Spitfire, I would not feel very easy. On the other hand, what we now have is the medieval system. Blair has modernised the House of Lords back to where it began, because when it began there were no hereditary peers. The King appointed cronies and they were there for life, and Blair's gone back to that and called it modernisation. Now I think you have to have an elected Senate. You see, they, the reason that the, no Prime Minister, certainly not Blair, wants an elected Senate is because the power of patronage is so great. You know, without being making a charge of corruption, if you happen to lend the Labour Party a lot of money, it increases your chances of ending in the House of Lords. I won't put it more than that. And I think it is a corrupt, inherently corrupt that, uh, it sh that a seat in Parliament should be in the gift of one man. So uh, my Constitution of Britain, the Commonwealth of Britain Bill, uh, does set out for an elected second chamber of a federal character bringing Scotland... Uh, Wales and England together and sorting out federal questions which I don't think anybody wants to have defence and foreign policy divided uh, you want decisions locally that affect you most but I'm glad you feel that I think it's ludicrous although I must say listening to some of their debates now they're rather better than the commons but uh, that's, uh, that's a bit of a surprise Lord Mackay for example of uh, is it Clash Curran? Clash 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 uh, I mean, he was Mrs. Thatcher's Lord Chancellor, and hearing him on civil liberties makes me feel quite a moderate. Yeah. I mean, he, well, I'm serious. Uh, yeah. Libertarians meet round the back. It's a yeah. funny thing to say, but I find Norman Tebbit and I agree about identity cards. <laughs> and you'd presumably get rid of the Lord Spiritual as well. I mean, there. Oh, the disestablishment of the Church of yeah. England is an yeah. absolutely overwhelmed. But you were never appointed by the Queen, were you? No. No, no, no. the Scottish uh, Church, uh, yeah. Scottish Episcopalians, yeah. We're elected. Ludicrous. And, and, I mean, do you know, this is the funny thing to say. Under the law, a Muslim Prime Minister could be elected uh, as Prime Minister, and he would then uh, could be legally able to appoint a lesbian Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> by law, he could do what he likes. I mean, the thing is rubbish. And the reason it survives, they don't want us to discuss it, do they? But if a lesbian Archbishop of Canterbury, a lot to be said for that, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm not against the idea, but I think they should be <laughs> chosen by the church. <laughs> Where are we? I'm lost. Yeah. Um, up there and then down here. The, here, there's one here. No, 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 a bit further down. There we are. But oh, gentlemen yes. at the back first, yeah. yeah. C can I go back for a second to the question of Iraq? I'm very interested in the motives of... Where are you? I can't see you. I'm here. He's in the middle. Up, 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 the, right. up the gang. Uh, both, the motives of both uh, Bush and Blair in invading Iraq. Uh, a few nights ago I heard Fukuyama, who you, you mentioned earlier, who explored some of the, the reasoning he thought behind 
Bush's thinking. Last night I heard Colin Cochrane who talked about the thinking behind, uh, Blair's thinking rather, um, in invading Iraq. He talked about things like democracy, freedom, um, values, and in Blair speak, doing the right thing. Certain other things were not mentioned. Oil wasn't mentioned. Economics was not mentioned at all. Can I ask your views on that? The motives behind the invasion oh, of yeah, Iraq. Yeah. Oh, I have no doubt the reason for Iraq was uh, was oil and power. Blair wanted, I mean, Bush wanted bases in the Middle East. Because remember, a lot of the oil, you know, is in that Central Asian area. Uh, I mean, the old uh, republics in the old Soviet Union got a lot of oil, and the Caspian oil, and all, it was oil. And then what uh, Bush did was to try to pretend that Saddam Hussein had had anything whatever to do with 9-11. He didn't at all. Everybody knows that. But he said to Blair, uh, I'm going to regime change, and I think I'm not, I, I think I'm right. Blair said, well, I can't get that through the British House of Commons, uh, so uh, let's make it about weapons of mass destruction. I think that whole story is completely cooked up. It was about oil. And this idea that the West is in favor of democracy, I mean, the Palestinians elected Hamas, mm. and what does the West do? Cut all the funding and try and starve them into submission. And the Israelis have captured half the Hamas cabinet. Even in Northern Ireland, we've got an assembly, and the British government won't let it meet because Ian Paisley doesn't want to go there. That's ludicrous. I mean, if Ian Paisley doesn't want to go to the assembly, why should that stop it meeting? I mean, Jerry Adam doesn't come to the House of Commons, doesn't stop the House of Commons meeting. And so I think the argument about democracy is a very shaky one. It is oil, and I think that applies to Iran too, you know. Still, I'm attending my judgment, but I think it's pretty widely shared. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to ask, what did you learn from interviewing the interviewers the other night? Did you think that they were, in fact, interviewing and using their techniques to get to the truth, or are they just a group of men with rather inflated egos who are pursuing their own agendas? Well, I, w I, I was asked to do the program, and uh, they said, give me half an hour, and I did these interviews, and for the first time in my life, they liked it so much, they lengthened the program from half an hour to an hour, which was good, because they had more time. My object was to make it possible for them to say what they really thought, and secondly, to show that a decent interview, you didn't have to be aggressive. And, uh, and I felt, I watched it again last night with a lot of journalists, I think it worked reasonably well, uh, because they did say quite horrific things. I mean, John Snow said, why talk to a local councillor when all the powers are now? Why talk to the monkey when you should talk to the organ grind? He said that about elected councillors. And why talk to trade unionists? We talk to the heads of multinational companies who tell trade unions what to do. And then, as Snow said, if you can't say it in half a minute, it's not worth saying. So I think it performed the function of letting people understand what they really thought. What I would really like to do now, and I mentioned it to Channel 4, I'd like to do interviews with people who've occupied key positions. A former uh, chief of the Imperial General Staff, a former cabinet secretary, a former head of MI5, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, get hold of Kofi Annan when he retires, a former commissioner from Brussels, to understand how power really works. Not in an aggressive way. I think you could call it debriefing, where you talk to these people who've held hugely powerful positions, have never had any publicity because they work behind the scenes, and try and interconnect the, 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 the system of government under which we're really governed. 
So um, I don't know whether Channel 4 seemed quite interested in that, but it would be the same purpose, not to argue, not to show them up, but to discuss with them the job they do to bring it out. Because I don't think people really understand, if you haven't been on the inside, how these forces, how the Bank of England interacts with the European Commission. I don't think they understand. And if you don't understand it, you don't know why you feel frustrated about the way the government behaves. One here, oh, that, on you go, yep, yep, and then you, okay. Um, I'm miss, if I'm missing anyone, yep, I see you, see you up there next, yep, yep, yes. Um, I'm just wanting to ask about the Midlothian question. I don't quite understand why it is such a problem. One of the reasons that so many Scots were in favour of the Scottish Parliament was that we were fed up with being ruled by the Tory party from England when we had six three or even no conservative um, MPs whatsoever and yet all this was foisted on us now the English are getting a bit of their own medicine as far as I can see but on the question of having um, a joint uh, foreign policy I'm not even sure that that is a good idea because the Scottish Parliament voted quite definitely against the war in Iraq and as a thanks for that, the Scottish regiments have spent more time in Iraq than probably any other regiment. No, well, on the question of, uh, of a separate foreign policy, I think if you had a separate foreign policy, that would be a complete division, actually. I mean, if you want to do that, I think that would be a total division. Uh, because if you might find uh, that you were taking totally opposite views on major matters involving national security... But then I'm not sure, you see, if you deal with the democratic deficit in England, that that would ever have happened. I don't think the English are all that keen on the war. But uh, it was pushed through, we were told, lies and so on. But I take your point. Uh, but that I think you're making the case there for a wholly independent Scotland, its own armed forces, its own foreign policy. And if the Scots wanted that, as I say, there'd be nothing ever to stop it happening. But I think people north and south of the border do see the merits of working together, but on a much more devolved basis, I think, with a federal Senate dealing with these questions, which would still have to be handled democratically. But could you have a, could Glasgow have its own foreign policy? It or has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting thought. There, and then uh, up at the back, yep, the, the pink, nice pink blouse. Tony, uh, turning the timetable back to your own parliamentary career, you rightly said, in fact, that you were employed by 60-odd thousand people, i.e. your constituents, and you were required to, again, rightly listen to their views on many issues. Uh, were there occasions, since you were elected on a party ticket, that there were, were there issues at times where the views of your constituents went against the party policy and issues, and how did you deal with them? And following on from that, what were the major issues in your experience where you disagreed with party policy, i.e. before you became a minister, obviously? Well, uh, on the question of conflict, you see, this is a thing that's very rarely reported, but if you're a member of parliament, every week, you go to your constituency, and people come with problems. I suppose, if I reckon about a 1,000 people a year, so for 50,000 people came to see me, I should think in my life. It's no good lecturing them on socialism or whatever. A lady would come and say, Tony, I'm 18, my husband's died, I need a bungalow. Tony, my son's in trouble with the police. 
Tony, my granddad can't live on his pension. Granny can't get a hip operation. Uh, my child's been sexually abused. And you had to address their problem and then say to yourself, what did you have to do to see that problem didn't affect anybody else? I learned everything from my constituents. So I never felt there was a conflict, but I mean truthfully, I remember once doing a meeting in Scotland on the question, it was in a by-election in Scotland, and the question of abortion came up. And, uh, and people came in with a coffin and said, Ben is a murderer. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I think I'm against abortion, but I am not, as a member of parliament, prepared to punish a woman who decides to have one. So I said, if you want to do that, don't vote for me. Actually, I wasn't a candidate there, but you know, I've said that. <laughs> no, but I, I've said that. People talk about capital punishment. I say, if you want to hang people, don't vote for me. And you know, funnily enough, it gives you a sort of credibility. I won't do things I don't believe in. And then they decide whether, in the circumstances, they're prepared to take it. Consistency has some merit. I'll tell you a very funny story. My eldest son was in Belfast the other day, and he was driven around by a Paisleyite cab driver who spent the whole journey cursing Sinn Féin. But when my son paid the bill, he said, but I'll say this for Jerry Adams, he stuck to his guns. And uh, <laughs> I told Ian Paisley, and he nearly fell over laughing, and so did... But, you see, there is something to be said for consistency. Don't you feel that? I divide politicians between the signposts and the weathercocks. The signpost says this is the way you should go. You don't have to take the advice, but five years later, the signpost is there. The weathercock hasn't got an opinion until they've talked to the spin doctors, the focus groups. The I've no time for weathercocks. So, you, but you pay a price for it. I mean, you do get defeated if you're a signpost occasionally. <laughs> and the final question goes to the woman at the back. Uh, yes, you mentioned the NHS um, earlier on, and um, I've worked as a nurse in the NHS for 20 years, and it saddens me to see how it's been gradually dismantled and destroyed. I'd have loved to have lived in the era when Bevan was about and all the excitement, and I wondered what your vision or what you think would help the NHS now to get back, back on its feet. Help. It's a, it's a question about uh, the NHS. She's worked in it for 20 years. Uh, she's depressed at its state. How can we get it back on its feet? Well, in a nutshell, I think the problem is uh, a top-down control. These management consultants. I don't want to insult. If any of your management consultants, I'll apologize to start with. But I heard a lovely story, a, 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 a really a sort of parable, about the health service, there was a boat race between the National Health Service and a Japanese crew. And both sides practiced long and hard, as you could imagine, and the Japanese won by a mile. So <laughs> the NHS called in a working party, which is what you do in a crisis of this kind, and it reported the Japanese had eight people rowing and one steering, and the NHS had eight people steering and one rowing. <laughs> so they... <laughs> They called in management consultants who uh, confirmed the diagnosis of the working party and recommended the NHS crew be completely restructured with three assistant steering managers, <laughs> three deputy steering managers, a director of steering services, obviously, and the rower be given an incentive to row harder. <laughs> and they had, 
they had another race, and this time they lost by two miles, so they laid off the rower for poor performance, obviously, <laughs> and they sold the boat and used it for a higher pay, an average pay award for Drake to CSF. They had too many management consultants and not enough listening to people who do the job. I think what we need in this country and in life is encouragement. All this naming and shaming and league tables and failing, You've got to have a platform of failure to build before anyone can stand on it and say, I'm a success. Encouragement. And I would have thought the best people to know how to improve the NHS are the people who work there, the porters, the doctors, the nurses, the staff. And I'm not saying it's as simple as that, but I find wherever I go, and I've just had a new pacemaker put in by the NHS, and believe it or not, when I'd had it done, I discovered that the hospital I had put in was at the bottom of the league tables in the whole country. <laughs> And I thought if I were a doctor in the hospital and I was told I was a failure before we even put my pacemaker in, uh, so a bit a different approach to it. All these people at the top, it's all top down in politics, in management. We need a little bit more bottom up. I do, if it may sound too simple to you, but I really do believe it. And when I was in uh, Havana a while back, I, uh, they asked if I'd like to see the hospitals. I said, yes, and a beautiful building. I said, marvellous. Well, it used to be a bank. They said, we didn't have any money, so we turned it into a hospital. <laughs> and I said, uh, they wanted me to show me the equipment. I didn't want to see that. I wanted to know how hospitals run. And they said, there are three meetings every month. One is shared by the management, and the unions and Ministry of Health are there. And the management tell them what their problems are. Next meeting in the month is held by the trade unions with the management and the Ministry of Health there. And the third meeting is the Ministry of Health and the Management and the Unions, and they sort it out because they're different interests, getting it right, uh, treating people decently, and seeing you spend the money wisely. And I thought that was an example of practical democracy, which might even have some relevance here. But anyway, I speak only as someone who uh, uses the health service and loves it. Loves it. Anyway, thank you. You've been a wonderful audience, and I really enjoyed it. If that was the last question, thank you very, very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had wisdom, we've had humor, and we've had love. Will you please thank Tony Benn? Thank you. Now we're going to sign some books. Yeah. <laughs>